0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi there, and welcome to New Books and Music, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. Uh, my name is Franz Nikolai. My guest today is Sane, who was born in England, lived in Ghana and Scotland before moving with his parents, who were academics to the United States in the early 1980s. He was a pop music critic at the New York Times from 2000 to 2008, um, has been a staff writer at the New Yorker since then, his first book, just out on Penguin, is called Major Labels: A History of Popular Music in Seven Genres. Fasani, thanks for coming on New Books Network.
0: Thanks for having me. I feel like this is a a conversation of uh, one or two earlier music conversations that we had many years ago.
1: Yeah, at least 50, <laughs> to paused for fifteen years and and about now to be picked up.
0: If I recall correctly, your band, the Hold Steady, was recording. Was it Boys and Girls in America? Maybe.
1: I think your piece came out right when the right when Boys and Girls came out, yeah, that week.
0: Yeah, so you you guys were in the studio finishing it up and I remember have like talking to you about punk and hardcore in particular do you remember that that time like about what punk and hardcore meant to a new generation of kids and if a new generation of kids who had that punk and hardcore sensibility whether they were still getting out of the punk rock movement what you and i got out of it or whether people with those inclinations would be finding it in other genres am i am i misrepresenting or do you you have any recollection of that I have no re- <laughs> recollection yes, of that, but it, yes. it, remai- it remains a good question. That, that <laughs> means I'm 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 at the advantage. You were arguing, and, and now you can definitely tell me if I'm representing your position right. Because I remember thinking about this for a long time. You were saying. Like no, I was kind of saying like, yeah, the new punk, it's, it's like some rave thing. It's some hip hop thing. It's like some totally other music that's resonating in that way that punk did for me as a teenager. And and your position was more like, no, there's still punk. And there's still like there's these crusty folk punk bands and there's all sorts of bands that are still playing what you would call more or less punk music and are still offering something to those kids that have that desire. You were basically arguing that punk was the new punk. I mean
1: as you as you point out in the book, punk is one of those things that is is to some extent a way of seeing the world more than it is yeah. a kind of music. Yeah. Um and well it's you know, both, right? Well that's it. okay. <laughs> Let's <laughs> I wonder about that. You know, the, the, the <laughs> book is about these, you're, you're, you're ide- identifying these genres as, as communities, as much yeah. as musical styles. And yes. I, um, you know, like punk, country and hip hop are, are, are identities, these sort of quasi religious gatherings of true believers in a way that I, I was one, I wonder if I w- agreed that that was true of some
0: of the other ones. Yeah, I mean, all of these things, they're not only different genres, but they work differently. And they raise different questions about whether they even are genres. Like, so... I sit sit down to do this foolhardy thing, right? Like, I've loved music since I was 14 in terms of really loving it. I've written about music since the 90s. And so I had this idea like, oh, I have a story to tell about how I think things fit together in the world of popular music since the Beatles. And I had a kind of a, a friendly and a slightly mischievous reason to use genres as the organizing principle. And the friendly one was like, oh, how do you get a handle on this story? And one way to do it is to tell a series of stories about these different, as I say in the book, these different communities, right? So in the book, there are seven. It's um, rock and roll, r and country music, punk rock, hip hop, dance music, and pop. And so my idea was, oh, within each of those, you have overlapping communities, groups of friends, enemies, manifestos, arguments and ideas about what music should sound like, and that this was a way to tell a coherent story or a coherent series of stories about popular music that would hopefully be interesting to experts, but also fun for people who haven't been paying close attention Um and are, have a feeling there is a difference between house and techno, but we're kind of like too afraid to ask. Um, the more mischievous reason to make it a book about genres was because I feel like genres kind of get a bad rap sometimes. People like me, and I'm probably guilty of this myself, music critics um, and musicians sometimes praise artists for crossing genres, mixing genres, transcending genre, leaving genres behind, right? You're not just an R&B singer. You're also drawing from all these other influences as if that's a good thing and as if there's something wrong with being, quote unquote, just an R&B singer, right? And in the book, I argue like, no, there's nothing wrong with that. Luther Vandross never had a number one pop hit. He was very clearly, quote unquote, just an R&B singer, But he was amazing. And the fact that he was so firmly within the genre meant that R&B listeners could kind of feel like they claimed him, they owned him. Um, But you're right. Like some of these genres are a little bit more of a flag to wave. I would argue that all of them in their way are identities, right? Like no one is necessarily waving the flag for like dance music, But people in that world who are DJs or are producers and their tracks have some relationship to the world of people getting together and dancing, I would argue that they're Music and their identities are deeply shaped by that. The, the questions that they ask about their tracks, even the idea—if you're in that dance music world—that putting out a track that's not that danceable, or where the beats per minute is is unusually high or unusually low, even if you do that, you're doing that knowing that you are rebelling in some sense against the expectations that surround you. And and one way to tell whether someone is part of a community is what they want to rebel against, right? You know, you know, someone's a country singer if they're railing against Nashville because no one else would really care that much. And so that is the argument that I make, that all these seven genres are communities in different ways and that they function in different ways, but that there is a sense of commonality and there is this dynamic of inclusion and exclusion that defines any community, especially perhaps musical ones.
1: Right. And you point out that the, one of the benefits of that identity and staying, being within that identity is that it gives insiders more room to experiment.
0: Yeah. It, yes. In a, in a, there, there is this, this funny, this funny push and pull. Where if you're going to be part of some tradition, you have to have some link to it somehow, right? If you're going to be a country singer, the question is like, what makes you country? And, and and one answer to that question could be like, okay, maybe you grew up somewhere else, and you know, you live a hipster life in Brooklyn, but you're obsessed with the sound of banjo and mandolin and pedal steel, and so you make music that sounds very country, even if that that's not exactly your lifestyle right that's one way to be country but the other way to be country is the the Dolly Parton path if you will which is to say you grow up in that culture you feel that culture in your bones your cultural identity is country and if that is the source of your country authenticity if that is the source of your connection to country music paradoxically that might give you more freedom to make a disco record like Dolly Parton did and still be super country you hear that on the radio now where there's a lot of songs that are basically rock songs, sometimes pop songs, borrowing uh, tools and techniques from R&B and hip hop. You hear programmed drums. You hear um, a lot of electronic uh, tracks. You hear people rapping sometimes or delivering the their lyrics in a very syncopated way. But because the cultural identity is country, because Uh, The performers have a connection both to the way they grew up that they think of as country and a connection and a dedication to the country fan base, the country listeners. That connection allows them to retain their identity as country singers, as country stars, even as their music starts to stray. Yeah.
1: I mean, the the sort of genial provocation here is to be descriptive and not prescriptive, right? To say that, look, look, genres exist, you know, we 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 can like it or not, but these are things that that influence how we how people make and and consume music.
0: Which Genial there, a, provocation. I love that.
1: <laughs> well, this is one of the things I've always liked about your writing as a critic is this impulse to like not to be yeah to be a sort of generous contrarian instead of a knee jerk contrarian or an angry <laughs> contrarian, like sort of poke at how the culture sense, settles on a consensus viewpoint. Um, and the consensus well, viewpoint in in music world certainly is often that um, you know that genre policemen like record executives or pedantic critics are are
0: the boogeyman, right. Yeah, and, and and thank you. That's a, a generous thing you've said about me. I, I I suspect we we share a certain mischievous spirit when it comes to music <laughs> and, and perhaps perhaps more broadly. I mean what but are the as a musician
1: primarily I'm congenitally sympathetic to this anti-genre point of view, while you of know <laughs> while, while <laughs> acknowledging that you're right that
0: they exist. Well, there's two things, right? There's the record industry thing, which certainly when I was a a full-time working critic at the New York Times, which was from 2002 to 2008, one of the most heartwarming discoveries I made was just like how little power, relatively speaking, the record industry had. like. They were, there was always some heavily hyped new performer that was supposed to be the next big thing. And like more times than not, it went nowhere. And half the time when someone ended up selling millions and millions of records, you know, the executives were surprised and, and sometimes not even that happy about it. I was writing a lot about like Southern hip hop in the 2000s. And I can tell you, like, at least a lot of the people I was talking to at labels didn't even really like that music. And they were just like... Really, this is like this dude with the, the gold teeth from Memphis is selling millions? Like, okay, but it wasn't what they would have predicted and it often wasn't exactly what they wanted. So yes, like everything else about popular music, genres are in part a record company conspiracy to sell you music more efficiently and easily. But the question to me is like, well, so many record company conspiracies fail Like, why does this one succeed? Why does this one live on? It must be because it resonates with something about us. And it must be because as humans, as music listeners, as Americans, like we love forming communities. I I write in the book a little bit, and I'm sure you've had a similar or I suspect you've had similar um, experience in your own life of being like deep into uh, hardcore punk rock rock World. There was a time in the 1990s. I was going to Harvard, living in Boston, and with a bunch of people, we tried to start a, a hardcore punk collective. I can't even remember what name we settled on, but it was like it wasn't that far removed from like the early Riot Girl meetings. Right, you're sitting around in someone's living room, and there's probably some vegetarian potluck, and we're talking about like political protest and ideology and putting shows together, and there was this incredible energy. Of feeling like everyone was all together, feeling like we had shared values, both musically and politically, feeling like all the people in that room believed a lot of the same things. All the bands we liked believed a lot of the same things. All the record company, all the like little indie labels, these punk rock labels that were putting out these records shared these values. And I think there can be something enormously powerful and kind of cool. About being in a world like that. And and again, that's an example. You only get a world like that. You only get that kind of intensity if you're willing to be a little bit closed-minded, if you're willing to say like, no, we're going to be insular. We're going to concentrate on what we have in common inside this room, and that makes us different from the outside world. And in a more paradoxical way, Right now as a listener, as as I know you are too, like I love exploring all sorts of different stuff, right? It's fun and it's easier than it's ever been to go from like listening to a death metal track to listening to a commercial country song and like, oh, here's like a cool techno set that was recorded two months ago in Europe, and then we're easing into, you know, some slow jams and we're back to indie rock. Like that's a fun way to listen to music, but part of the energy you get from listening to music that way is because you're switching between worlds and you get to jump in and out of all these different worlds. And those of us that love jumping into and out of different worlds, I think should also pause to realize that those worlds wouldn't exist if there weren't some people who weren't constantly switching. Those worlds wouldn't exist if there weren't some people who were all about death metal and they know the history of the music and they're obsessed with the the different guitar tones that different groups have have used over the years. And so, you know, those of us that love the kind of riotous diversity of popular music, I think we owe something to those sort of like pig-headed, narrow-minded, genre-minded people who stay within a genre and focus and obsess on a genre. You can appreciate mm. that even if you don't want to live that way yourself.
1: I mean, punk especially is arguably one of the more exclusive and boundary policing of music scenes. You know, I love that anecdote of the needle drop test you had to pass to join the radio station. <laughs>
0: um, yes. You, and, you know, and it's- Go ahead. No, no. Well, I'm just saying it's both. Like you could pass that. So when when I was at college, I was at Harvard and they had this radio station, WHRB. And the rock department was known as the record hospital. And it was – you had to be – and it was like devoted to punk rock. And to earn the right to take an unofficial semester-long course that would let you become a DJ, you had to pass a test, which had a a listening – part of it, where they would play you little snippets of songs and you had to react. And as someone who was later involved in grading these tests, it wasn't that like, oh, you have to recognize all of this. It was just more because a lot of people didn't recognize all of it but they had a spirit or a feistiness or an imaginative way of responding to this music that made it seem like they could be interesting people. So, it wasn't exactly that, but you're right like the question in punk rock is often a question of like what are the genres? I mean, sorry, what are the boundaries and and you know i think every i think every genre has boundaries right and often there are paradoxes because every genre finds ways to be inclusive and ways to be exclusive right you think about disco and part of the issue with disco and part of the reason it went as nuts as it did was cuz it wasn't that great at policing its boundaries right disco was this thing that like everyone could jump in there and you could you know you could be like the coolest underground dj you know inventing this music and that would be great You know, you could be Tom Moulton, you know, doing pioneering remixes, and that could be great. Or you could be the Bee Gees or the Rolling Stones or Dolly Parton or, like, the Star Wars soundtrack. Like, everyone was making disco records. And... And that was part of the reason why there was so much backlash to disco, right? There was no there was no one saying like, oh, this is real disco. This is fake disco. So it all got kind of like jumbled together in people's minds. And like John Travolta ends up becoming in the public imagination, like the face of disco, right? Because he's in this very popular disco movie. So, you know, there are downsides and genres sometimes suffer for not policing their boundaries. At the same time, Disco, is, there's no genre that is more associated with literal gatekeepers than disco, right? Like, disco <laughs> comes to be associated with Studio 54 and getting turned away from the club. And so it actually does epitomize a certain kind of exclusivity. Freak Out by Chic was written as a protest song after the guys from Chic were turned away from Studio 54. Um, so you know most genres find ways to doing both at once and whenever you hear someone talk about a musical community and being like we accept everyone we're there's no you know there's no gatekeeping everyone's allowed you know that's when i kind of lean in and get a little bit suspicious and i'm like okay so there are rules but you're not just you're just not telling us what they are and sometimes those can be just rules of like we're going to make our genre so extreme that most people don't want to go anywhere near it right that's one way to be gatekeeping another way of doing it is like well we're going to be democratic but what it means when a genre is democratic is that the listeners get to decide and you know, either your records moving up the R and B charts and getting played on R and B radio, or it's not right. Like that's another way to be exclusive. Anyone's welcome in the R and B world. Certainly uh, for generations of black singers, it's not like you have to do a certain thing to be R and B certainly within black music. It's been a relatively inclusive tradition, but I think not coincidentally, it's also been a, uh, tradition that's closely linked to the idea of popularity as the barometer of what's important in R&B. Aretha Franklin throughout her life never stopped paying attention to the R&B charts, which sounds insane with a voice like Aretha Franklin, like, you know, who cares? But, you know, every week she would look and see who's number one on the Billboard R&B chart. Why isn't it me? I want to be number one on the R&B chart. So again, usually when a genre is very inclusive, exclusivity finds a way to sneak in because that's what keeps the community feeling like a community.
1: Yeah. When you were talking about your experience in the punk collective, I was, rem- I'm, I've been reading that uh, the Vivian Gornick book that just got reissued, the romance of American mm-hmm. communism in which, you, you know, she's it's in this oral history of the old leftists and even the ones who had renounced it still remembered their time in the party as having been the most sort of vibrant and alive time of their lives. Um, yeah. Uh, it's it, fun. You know, at, even in the in the experience of you know if someone's excommunicated a friend or a family member like that that they're 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 putting up that border, and so I right. wondered if do the connection you make between the negative identity of punk you know that it taught you to hate music too as you say, um, <laughs> and a sort of residual affection for that kind of negative identification feed in any way your sympathy
0: for these genre boundaries. Yeah, I think they do. I mean, certainly you know that something like that punk rock radio station helped me think about genres in a different way helped me think about like oh like of course there's a punk rock orthodoxy right when i was a kid when i was 14 my friend gives me a punk rock mixtape and this is punk rock broadly defined right it's it's sex pistols and and, and um Dead Kennedys, but it's also like college rock bands like Firehose and Too Much Joy. And um, so this was punk broadly defined. But of course, and, and so it took me a little later to realize like, oh, punk has an orthodoxy. Punk has this dual identity where punk means, you know, punk could mean being weird and creative and different. But punk also has a kind of revivalist or even reformational spirit, right? Like a lot of the early punks, what they thought they were doing was reviving the spirit of rock and roll, which had kind of gone astray in the progressive rock 70s, and they were going to bring it back, right? One of the first records to be marketed as a punk record is Nuggets which comes out in the early 70s. And it's a compilation of singles from the 60s put together by Lenny Kaye. And the idea is like, well, when rock and roll was wild and young and punk, those were the good days. We've kind of lost that. Maybe we can get back to that, right? So, so there is something stubbornly retro and stubbornly conservative about punk rock. And I think loving punk and, and learning that helped me celebrate help me, help me love all sorts of genres and help me see that that duality, the, the, the conservative identity and the more kind of progressive identity for lack of a better word exists within every genre, right? Rock and Mm -hmm. roll turns out to be, you know, of the seven genres I talk about rock and roll is in some sense, I argue the most traditional, which is to say like the basic setup hasn't changed that much, right? You get a a drummer, a bass player, guitarist or two, keyboardist very important Franz, and uh and a singer (laughs) and like that's that's your lineup right and um and that hasn't really changed and in fact like even the bands haven't really changed like there's always new rock bands but it's 2021 and if you meet someone who says they love rock and roll like that like rock music is their thing they're probably into led zeppelin like they probably like the rolling stones whatever else they might like whereas country music i think partly because it is so focused on its audience, has to change with its audience. Because And and so the rules turn out to be actually less hard and fast. And in that way, country music is sonically, I would say, in some ways less conservative than rock and roll. It's always changing. Do we have a fiddle player? Do we have a string section? Are banjos in or banjos out? What's up with electric guitars? Are we allowed to use drum machines? There's a constant evolution. And, and, and because of that, you get a big audience of listeners who think like, oh man, something's gone wrong. Like this stuff they're doing in Nashville. It's not even country music anymore. Right. And that's one way you can tell that a genre is still evolving. And it, it creates that feeling. Same thing with hip hop. You know, you have people who grew up on people who grew up on hip hop, um, on Jay Z, here, here, would, you know, here NBA Youngboy, and they're like, man, this, this, this hip hop is not the same as it used to be. Just as people who grew up on Run DMC would hear Jay Z, and they'd think like, I don't know, what's up, what's up with hip hop these days? It's not what it used to be. Um, I think science has proven that hip hop sounded best whenever you were in high school, um, and I think that <laughs> That's true of most I, music. I, I, I think. Yeah, yeah absolutely so I think that um yeah I, I think that that's right that 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 sense of sometimes a certain amount of gatekeeping which again exists in every genre can go hand in hand with changing in certain ways while staying the same in other ways and most genres have to find a way to do both
1: yeah yeah I mean you say a community feels more cohesive when the genre sp- shrinks not when it expands yeah. which is maybe more of an argument for a community than the genre. And I, I wonder to what extent you think those thing, those are separable, if it's the community yeah, I mean, that, that become the gatekeepers of the genre.
0: Well, at different, at different times, it works different ways. I mean, obviously, as you say, and th- that's true, the community is more in the forefront when the genre is smaller. You know, the 1980s were a time of real crisis for r and The great critic Nelson George publishes The Death of Rhythm and Blues at the end of the 80s. And his idea is like... Prince is going pop. Michael Jackson is going pop. And like, yeah, that's great. But like things are getting fuzzy. Everyone's listening to Michael Jackson. So what does it even mean to be an R&B fan anymore? Maybe the threat to the genre as he saw it wasn't that no one was listening to it. It was that certain R&B stars were so popular – that the genre was starting to seem kind of irrelevant, was was, was starting to seem not exactly like a community. And mm-hmm. yeah, maybe there, is a, maybe there is a push and a pull between the musical identity of a genre and the social identity. I mean, obviously when I say community, a lot of times I'm talking about a virtual community and not virtual in the sense that we use it now to mean having to do, having something to do with computers, but just virtual in the sense that People aren't always in the same room. In the old days, you would listen to a record, especially if it was a sort of a weird record, and you would have some idea that other people were listening to it too – but you couldn't really be sure and you didn't really know who they were. But still part of the fun of putting on that record often was that you could become the kind of person who listens to that record. You could become part of that community, which was virtual in the sense that you didn't even really know if it existed. You just imagined it did. I think about the way you know radio stations would similarly summon together a listenership and you could be loyal to your station. And even if Even if most of your fellow listeners, you never meet them. And so that's another way that a genre can be a a community. Even if the people aren't interacting that much, they think of themselves as being part of the same team. And I often find when I'm listening to music, I think a lot about people, both the people who make the music and also the other people who are listening to it.
1: Right, and the the greater the identification, like the I'm thinking the 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 sort of defunct accusation of selling out is 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 most (laughs) dangerous for people, for artists or politicians. The more closely they're identified with the community.
0: Yeah, and and you know, selling out is obviously a, a thing that's hard to define, but a lot of times what it means is that you've somehow traduced the values of the musical community you felt like you were part of, right? It could be it could be Green Day getting banned from playing 924 Gilman because they've signed to Reprise Records. But it can also be, you look at the situation now of Casey Musgraves, right? A country singer who is beloved but not really and is popular, but not necessarily popular among the core country listenership. It doesn't get played on country radio that much. And this year, she's nominated for a Grammy in the pop category not the country category. And she complained and her management company complained. They said, wait a second, don't take us out of our community and and, and, and slot us as a pop act. We don't want to be pop. We want to be country. So that, that anxiety of wanting to be part of a musical community is something that hasn't gone away, even if the language of selling out has changed as the economics of the industry have changed. And obviously hip hop is part of what changed that for America. It's certainly what changed it for me, right? I went from you know, spending most of my time listening to pretty obscure, you know, punk and hardcore records, to falling back in love with hip hop, and that taught me to love ambition. It taught me to 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 be rooting for these people. If you're a Wu Tang fan in the 1990s, part of the fun of listening to the Wu Tang Clan is that it feels like these people are taking over the world, and that's such an, an unlikely and an exciting scenario that you're rooting for them as they're signing big record deals for all the members individually as they're starting a clothing line they're developing a video game like it was fun to watch Wu-Tang Clan take over the world and so in that sense hip hop helped cure me of my knee jerk suspicion of success and, and taught me that success could be fun could be interesting and 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 it's fascinating to see that in the wider culture right where where Travis Scott has a, a special meal at McDonald's right and, the, <laughs> and and Travis Scott is someone who has a lot of credibility with listeners with young listeners he represents something pretty cool that's happening in terms of the intersection of hip hop and streetwear and the expanding sound of hip hop um and the reaction to this, there's like almost no backlash. Everyone's like, "That's awesome!" Travis Scott has a McDonald's meal. Let's go get the Travis Scott meal. And you know, for me, for I think for a lot of people who grew up, or came of age in the 1990s, this was sort of surreal to watch. The idea that that, a, that an artist with some sort of countercultural credibility would be celebrated for partnering with McDonald's, and I think hip hop, more than anything, has been responsible for that change and that that different way of thinking about sell, uh, about selling out. But what it hasn't done is erase the anxiety of community membership, of, of are you in and are you out and what's the difference and what does that mean? Yeah, that seems right. Um, I mean,
1: part of what feels so counterintuitive, I guess, about the pro-genre stance is that the <laughs> rhetoric that we that we hear these days is so much about how we live in a post-genre world. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the sort of hipster default position i.e. the people who most value their cultural capital is more or less exactly uh claiming to like all music right um which is impossible which is impossible you're maybe the <laughs> first person i've ever seen claiming hipster as an identity you know it's, <laughs> it's one of those things which like gent like a gentrifier is almost always somebody else right. um
0: you yeah know, the, the, the h word what hipster, makes you want to claim it yeah let's talk about that um <laughs> <laughs> well you know i think um i'm I'm skeptical of any term that is that people claim is always bad or always good, right? And a lot of these cultural markers have elements of both. And hipster, the reason hipster becomes a very useful term in the 2000s is because you have a kind of a new generation of young people in cities who are into music and maybe they have something of a punk rock background or maybe some of the music they listen to is derived from punk. But they're obviously not punks and they're not ravers. They're not devoted to a single genre, but they're kind of like interested in a whole bunch of like vaguely cool music. And I think that captures a real thing that's happening. And just as it is easy for some people to sneer at rednecks, it's, in, it's easy for some people to sneer at hipsters because there's a lot of baggage that goes along with that. But I think just as a lot of people reclaimed the term redneck and said, hey, you know what? This does sort of describe me and I can have a sense of humor about it. And like, yes, there are cringy aspects to this thing, but it captures something true about the way I live and the way I think of myself – I don't see any good reason why that wouldn't happen with hipster too. It it calls to mind a a bundle of characteristics that if you're looking at at urban culture in the 2000s and the 2010s, like really does exist and that you would see on the streets of certainly big cities and also some small and and mid-sized cities too. So, you know, I I like the idea that, and I think think sometimes um, a term like hipster, part of the reason people hated it was because they thought they were somehow like – too good to be captured by a term, or they thought mm-hmm. like maybe it would seem like bragging. It was a, in, in a weird way a way of bragging about your hipster identity was to imagine that it didn't exist. I don't really have a hipster identity. I'm not like those rednecks who are always claiming their redneck identity. Like that seems sort of unsophisticated to wave a flag like that. I'm too sophisticated to wave a flag. And so part part of my idea of reclaiming the word hipster is is a way of saying like look this is just one tribe out of many in America. There's nothing all that special about the hipster tribe. It's just like a tribe. It's just a group of people with some shared assumptions and some shared, you know, folk ways. And like, let's not treat, let's stop treating hipsters like they are somehow worse, which is a way of saying somehow better than everyone else. It's just another tribe
1: do you think of hipster as a community of taste in the sense that you mean elsewhere in the book like do you have can you have a music adjacent scene without a specific genre of music associated with it or is that genre what we sort of generically call indie rock
0: well well yeah that's the thing like indie rock is sort of linked to hipster especially if you define indie rock very broadly right to include you know lcd sound system as well as like death cab for cutie right there's a lot of crossover there and i think that um I think that part of the reason people hated the term hipster was because it didn't feel quite communal enough like it felt too big there weren't the thing because it was such a, a negative identity there were no tests and no rules about who got to be a hipster and who didn't right and 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 I think part of the anti-hipster um, movement or the anti-hipster rhetoric was this feeling. You hear this with gentrification too, or this worry that it's like taking over. That it's 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 like one of these like a uh, like micro-engineered gray goo, right? That's like taking over the world, and everywhere you look, these people are there. So in fact, what that complaint was, people said it was a complaint about snobbery or something, as if hipsters were snobs. You know, I think the term snob is very hard to define. I think anyone who likes a thing and dislikes another thing could be considered a snob in a certain context. I think the real the real fear and the reason why people love to hate hipsters was this fear that hipsters were everywhere, that hipster culture was hard to escape, that it was taking over everything, that it was too big, right? It's easier it's easier it turns out to love a culture or community if there are some gatekeepers. If it seems like no, this isn't just some vague thing that every every idiot is doing in every city. This is like something you actually have to participate in. So, I think the people Often the people that were most critical of so-called hipster culture, what they were doing, even if they didn't know it, was saying that they get uncomfortable when there aren't gatekeepers, when there aren't rules, when there aren't boundaries, like, and that that community seems much less appealing to them if it doesn't have any definition to it.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Also, you, uh, there's a there, you, you mentioned this sort of inherent tension when you're talking about pop music. This inherent tension between popness and hipness—that something yes. that's popular can't be hip—which is it introduces a funny contradiction, since the hipsters of the past ten or fifteen years have been so eager to embrace pop music, as you well know. <laughs>
0: Yeah, exactly right. There's you know, a lot of these terms are relative, right? A lot of them are um positional goods, if you will. And so, yes, something can only be hip compared to something else or popular compared to something else. Even punk is kind of a relative term, right? Like punk music is punk compared to the non punk music. It's a it's a structural identity in that sense. And so, yes, for me, that was what pushed me out of the punk world is I was like, well, what would be punk to the world of punk? And you know, you, you quickly get into this kind of like double negative situation where anything could be punk to someone, to the right person, right? From the right perspective, any anything could seem kind of punk. And similarly, with this kind of hipster and pop thing, it, it was two things at once, right? Like the embrace of pop can be an embrace of a very specific sound. There was this thing that happened in the 80s in the UK and the US where a bunch of genres kind of came together in the aftermath of both disco and punk and created a kind of upbeat electronically influenced, you know, sometimes synthesizer and sometimes drum machine heavy, danceable, tuneful music. And as I said, a lot of these performers came out of the punk and or disco scenes, however indirectly, and you get this sound in the 80s that ends up being kind of the sound of pop music. When someone says they're a, you know, whether you're talking about Katy Perry or Charlie XCX, or, you know, or you're talking about hyper pop artists today, you know, when people say they are pop, one thing they might mean is they sound like some of those 80s records, right? We see that Mm -hmm. in the 2000s with The Rise of Robin who's like, you know, the, the icon of hipster pop. She's making these great records that obviously owe a debt to the sort of synth pop of the 1980s, the danceable pop records of the 1980s. And the irony, of course, in America, at least, is that like these records are not very popular. Most of the most of the Robin singles don't chart, the ones that do don't do very well on the charts. Like, it's not like Robin was ever on the radio. So she was pop in sound and not in fact, though, as we saw recently with the uh, the Red Sox dancing to Call Your Girlfriend, Like those Robin records really do resonate. So that's a good example of pop functioning as a, as a sound. And in that sense, as a community, and in that sense, hipsters embracing pop in that sense is hipsters embracing a certain sound that was once considered uncool and is now considered cool, right? This is a very familiar process in music. Pop very broadly defined would just be whatever is popular, and, mm-hmm. and the question is, if you're serious about loving pop and are in some sense a hipster, like, what does that mean? Like, does that mean you really just like, like, whatever's on, you know, there are different ways of measuring popularity, but does that mean you just like all the most popular singles or all the most popular albums? Does that mean that your musical tastes are, in fact, like, totally normy? Um maybe but as you saw with like norm core fashion like often often these movements that that claim to be embracing what quote unquote regular people like often these movements tend to turn out to be deeply Irregular. And often these movements that seem to be like a, you know, the that taste as a concept would be fading away actually show like how taste is important. It's just a more complicated, sophisticated version of musical taste. And I think, I think you see that with the hipster embrace of pop, right? Like if your embrace of so-called pop music leads you to an act like a hundred gecks or something like, you know. That's not about liking normal music. That's about liking a specific tradition that has a specific relationship to the pop chart, and, that, and that's kind of a different thing.
1: Yeah, and then there's this. All, there's this other group of people who don't base their identity, which is you know you people like you and me, and almost everyone we know have some sort of I- I identity based around our, our taste, right? Uh, but. Um, I taught a class in reading and writing about music a, f- a few years ago that I opened with the Carl Wilson book and Beard- Bordeaux as a way of opening the discussion about interrogating taste and just <laughs> just, just,
0: sort just, of- just for people who just for people who don't know Carl Wilson writes a book called uh, about Celine Dion which turns out to be partly a book about how he himself doesn't like Celine Dion he feels like he doesn't know anyone who likes Celine Dion he's Canadian so this is a big deal and yes. uh Yes, it's a book where he kind of like interrogates the question of like, what does it mean to have taste in popular music?
1: Well, the reaction was sort of like they were just they they found it totally perplexing, like what was wrong with liking Celine Dion, which isn't to say they they were hipsters. They just didn't define themselves by by their taste and were sort of confused by people who did.
0: Well, yeah, and Uh, I I say in the book that it seems possible that one thing that might be happening is that some of those divisions are more political or moral as opposed to aesthetic. Like, I I think it's true that probably you don't get any credit now for liking some obscure musician the way that might have been considered cool in the old days. You definitely don't get much credit for disliking a, a very popular musician, right? There's nothing cool about that but maybe those kinds of definitions exist more politically maybe you do get some credit for championing a cause that is considered more radical than what's going on in liberal politics right maybe you do get some credit for putting your foot down and saying like i'm not interacting with this musician or this person you know for political reasons and so i think i think some of that energy you're right, has kind of moved from a, a more purely musical energy to a, a more political energy. Because I think, you know, a, a good example of that is, um, you know, if you think about two of the biggest um, the biggest acts of this year in music, one of them is Olivia Rodrigo, who's a, a Disney actress who puts out what I think is uh, pretty great. It's basically a pop punk breakup album. And like, It's, you know, the songs are super catchy. She's stealing a riff from Elvis Costello. You know, it's huge success has this big single driver's license, which is one of the biggest songs of the year. Yeah, you wouldn't get, you know, you wouldn't get much. Everyone seems to love it, right? There's not a, a big movement of like hipsters looking down their nose at Olivia Rodrigo. Everyone's like, yeah, this is great. Another of the big stars of the year is Morgan Wallen, who's this country singer who likewise has this smash double album called Dangerous, comes out at the beginning of the year. And he gets pulled off of country radio after a video emerges of him out with friends and he uses the N-word in, I think, what's supposed to be a jocular fashion with his friends. Morgan Wallen is white. I'm not sure if we know the, the racial identity of his friends. And he gets pulled off of country radio and he becomes a really polarizing figure. Right. I'm I'm sure it would not be hard to find people who said, like, I'm not messing with that guy. No one should listen to Morgan Wallen. Forget it. Whereas his fans love him as much as they ever did. Eric Church pulled him on stage at a concert, I think in Philadelphia, maybe the other night. And people went nuts. And and eventually Morgan Wallen's records snuck back onto radio stations just because people love them so much, including me. And so that's an example of how the distinction wouldn't be or wouldn't primarily be aesthetic But there would be a strong sense among a lot of people, including a lot of people whom we might call hipsters, that like Morgan Wallen is what the other people listen to, and I don't want to listen to that. I'm not like those people. I don't co-sign this.
1: Mm. You do make an analogy at one point um, between this sort of tribalness of genre identification to tribal political identification. Um, And you mentioned the the movie Trolls World Tour, in which tribes of trolls... devoted to different yes. genres, literally wage war. Um, yeah. And I, I wanted to quote quote you at, at a little greater length than I, than I have so far. Um, you say, it seems strange that our old tribal boundaries seem to be dissolving at precisely the moment when people are worried about an increase in political tribalism. I sometimes wonder whether political convictions are replacing musical convictions as the preeminent marker of subcultural identity and whether political advocacy and organizing supplies some of the sense of belonging that people once got from tight-knit punk scenes, that would not necessarily be an unhappy development. And I, I, I'm just wondering...
0: Uh, Is that a hot take wh- or not? I can't tell anymore. Well,
1: <laughs> I, I guess my question then was like, why does the exclusionary impulse that you identify as driving music scenes and tastes, which are relatively low stakes, um, what do, doesn't that present a slightly more malign political problem. Like it's one thing to say, you don't belong in my scene. And it's another to say, you don't belong in my country.
0: Yeah. And I think that, I mean, this is a good example. Well, there's two answers to that, right? One is that part of what I love about music is that compared to some of the other stuff that we talk about, it's relatively harmless and absolutely fun. And so it's a way that you can think about some of these questions in the context of popular music, in my view, it's easy to celebrate divisiveness in popular music. It gives us all these genres. It's easy to enjoy the fun and the back and forth. When we're talking about politics, when we're talking about laws, maybe maybe that doesn't seem like the appropriate response. But I would say that the connection is this idea that humans love communities. And communities, again, tend not to include absolutely everyone, or people tend not to, if a community includes absolutely everyone, it tends not to feel like a community to people, not to feel like a home. And so, you know, I do feel like one of the things that that drives a lot of the political debate now is figuring out like what our communities are. And and you know, is that a more local community? Is there a way? Is there a sense that it's a more national community? In a way, one thing that's happened, right, is our you could say that one thing that's happened in politics is that some of the local boundaries have indeed been erased, right? And that now People politically tend to think of themselves as belonging to very large communities instead of maybe the smaller, more geographically idiosyncratic political communities that might have defined politics 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago. And, you know, as we're seeing, there are some real downsides to, you know, to a country where everyone feels like they're on one of two teams. Right. Even though when you think about it, that is a version of a thing that people often say they want, which is for the barriers to come down and people to, and people to meet and people to link up. And, and What I observe certainly in music, which is something I, I guess I know more about than politics, but certainly what I uh, observe in music is that often when those, those borders, those community barriers come down one place, they often tend to be erected someplace else.
1: I mean, it sounds, it sounds a little bit more like breaking down a bunch of lower barriers to build one, even one giant barrier.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and if, if the, if, if the, if the solution to that, if you think of that as a problem, then there is some irony to the idea that the solution to that problem would be to um, find new ways to erect new local barriers, new Mm -hmm. local borders.
1: I really enjoyed the parts of the book where you describe your experience as a critic, um, or as you say, going to parties for work. Um, <laughs> you set up, a you've hierarchy. done something like that in your life, I believe. I yes, I, I sure have. Um, you'd cover you set you set up this hierarchy of music that was excellent, popular, or interesting in that order. Um, how did you settle on that rubric? Was that did that how did how did how did you develop that?
0: Yeah. Excellent, popular, interesting. It was something, you know, when I was writing at the New York Times, I had to figure out like what to write about. And the New York Times did this very kind of old fashioned thing where when I got there in 2002, the, the music section was built around live performance, I think because it was patterned on jazz and pop and jazz music. And the jazz section was patterned on classical music. And the idea was like, here's what happened at the symphony hall last night, there was a concert. And so we kind of did some version of that. And so in that sense, we were paying close attention to just because of the way this was set up, as music critics, John Perellis was the, the chief pop music critic then, still is, and Ben Ratliff did pop as well as jazz. And you know, we would be trading emails, and the thing we'd be looking at was like who's selling tickets? Like if someone's coming to the New York and they're playing The Garden, we're gonna write about it. If they're playing Radio City, we're gonna write about it. If they're selling out Bowery Ballroom back then, even, or, you know, which is a 550, I think, capacity club, you you may know better than me. Um, Sounds about right. You know, if so, yeah, if someone's selling a certain number of tickets in New York, we're going to write about it. And um, so, in that sense, popularity was built into the model. And when we started writing more about reviewing albums, yeah, anything that sells, anything that's at the top of the album charts, anything that sells more than, I don't know, more than, in those days more than half a million copies maybe maybe even less than that is 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 something that people will want to know about whether it's good or bad right so that was one that was one reason to tell someone about music so that's popular, right? The second reason to tell someone about music is because you think it's really good, right? If someone puts out an album, even if no one's buying it, like if you think this is the album of the year, reason enough to write about it. I didn't think then, I don't think now that there's any difference between thinking an album is quote unquote good and loving it, right? I think that's just like the same thing. And so, like, if you love an album, great. That's another reason to write about it. And then there's this third kind of tricky category, which is interesting. And, you know, my, my, my view then and now is that too much writing about music is about music that is supposed to be interesting even though the person doing the story even though it's not popular and the person doing the story doesn't think it's good, right? Yeah. It's like, okay. "Oh, th- there's a there's a bunch of refugees from some war-torn country and they formed a ska band." It's like, uh, "Okay, but like is the album awesome? Are people going to the show?" Or is this just sort of like a story that's supposed to be interesting? Is this is this someone saying, like, well, I don't like this music, but this is the kind of music I might like if I liked music. And and that's always annoyed me, that 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 lack of passion, the idea, like the idea of like, I'm not excited about this music. No one else is excited about this music either, but you should check it out. I'm like, well, well why? Um, and so that's why I say that my preference was if those were the three criteria, um, Popular, good, interesting, my um, or good, popular, interesting. Um, My preference was for for music that was at least two out of those three, Um, and and that I was very skeptical of music that was only interesting and not popular and good. Interesting, of course, is itself an interesting, a complicated, critical term, right? Because when I say that, if you have a certain cast of mind, you immediately think, wait, can music be good without being interesting? And, and that's a, you know, that's a a kind of weirdly deep question, right? There's a, you know, you, you think about Brian Eno, music for airports and ambient music, right? Like, is that interesting? Or is the whole idea that it's like not interesting, but like that, or is interesting just a synonym for good? Like, well, no, because I guess music could be interesting and not good or popular, right? Like if the president released a country album and no one bought it and it was bad, you know, that would be worth writing about. That'd be newsworthy. That would be interesting, even if it wasn't good or popular. So I think it's possible. But I also would think sometimes about like going to review techno and it's like, um, you know, you're going to be in a nightclub and it's going to be, you know, some someone just going deck, 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 some version of that for like two hours. And it would be like a really intense and transformative experience. But to the reader it might sound kind of boring. And as a writer, your job would be to make that sound interesting. And I think, you know, I think if we're being honest, most music writers are biased in terms of music that's easy to write about, right? Like you're biased in terms of someone who's like, has a colorful story or has quotable lyrics, like that stuff is easier to write about. And so when I was doing that full time, I did try to push back against that and write about music that was hard to write about, music that might be perceived I guess wrongly, I would think as boring.
1: Mm-hmm. As a critic, I'm am wonder I'm curious how have how you've how have you experienced being reviewed?
0: <laughs> well, I haven't gotten the full um, I haven't gotten the full experience yet. I don't think, um, uh-huh. which is to say, people have been really nice to me, which I appreciate. Um, you know, when you when you write a book like this, as you can imagine, it's kind of a daunting task to sit down and write a history of popular music. Um, and, uh, you know, there were certainly times when I thought it was an impossible task and times when I thought it was a bad idea. Eventually I realized uh, at, at the most, only one of those was true. Um, and, <laughs> Uh, but but the, the hope when you do that and and, and you know I kind of got used to the the drug at the New York Times of being in print like every other day you get that little adrenaline hit of like hey they printed my words in a newspaper and sent them out all over the city all over the country like that's awesome um, at the New Yorker I moved to the New Yorker in two thousand eight and you only get that adrenaline adrenaline hit like every few months right like oh my story's out. Um, and writing a book man that adrenaline drip slows way down and as you know from writing uh, writing like you're working for like months for years and it just seems surreal and at a certain point you kind of give up on the idea that this will be anything ever than you just in a room and the only thing that keeps you going is the idea that like oh maybe people will read it Maybe they'll find it interesting. Maybe they'll have something to say about it. So the novelty of people like actually reading this book that I wrote and engaging with it um, definitely still hasn't worn off. And neither has the novelty of sometimes um, being in an interview situation and not taking notes. That's really weird as well. Mm. Um, usually, Usually I'm the one asking the questions and now I'm the one trying not to say anything too stupid.
1: I mean, there is a way in which this sort of like omnicompendium compendium is, is a slightly unusual choice for a, fir- for a first book, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a big You must have been thinking a for a long time I, about what your first book would be. So and like why the sprawling history and not a, like the more, a more specific or conceptual defense of genre, for example.
0: Well, it was partly a reaction to the thing that I write about, which is, you know, this book, I say it's like 50 years, right? It's basically what what happened in popular music after the Beatles broke up, w- with the idea that like people know something about the Beatles in the 60s and the Vietnam War and Woodstock and whatever, whatever. And that once you start talking about music in the 70s and onward, most people, even music fans get a little bit confused, at least about some of it, right? Maybe you know everything there is about there is to know about Smokey Robinson and the invention of the quiet storm genre, but you weren't paying super close attention to death metal or whatever, right? And so um, that sense that that popular music became kind of fractured, fragmented, chaotic, obscure, like no one knows anything, like, you know, people don't like, it's just confusing and it's kind of daunting. I like the idea of writing a book that could hopefully reach a general audience and someone who was just sort of like interested generally in music, but like not necessarily that up on it, not necessarily a music nerd. I liked the idea of writing a book that someone could just like pick up and they could learn this stuff. They could learn how this, at least my view of how this stuff fit together. You know, what country music meant in the eighties, what it meant in the nineties, how you go from, you know, Waylon Jennings to Reba McIntyre to Garth Brooks, to Shania, like how that happens. And, and that's always been what I've done. You know, there've been, I, I, Early on, in uh, I guess now it's about a quarter of a century ago, um, I interned at The Source magazine because I was just so obsessed with hip hop. And you know, there is great work that's done in that kind of a context when when you're writing within a genre, within a community, whether that's a community of people who love a certain genre or just a community of like music obsessives. And there's great work that you can do in that, but. I've always felt like the thing that I was best at was was being more of a translator and like ducking into some, ducking down some alleyway or jumping down some rabbit hole and then like reporting back to like the wider, more normal world of like, here's what's going on. So my hope, was that by writing a book that is kind of like this big swing of like, here's what happened in the last 50 years. It was something that could maybe be accessible and hopefully fun to people who haven't been obsessing over this stuff the way you and I have, and hopefully could also be interesting, provocative, fun, enraging um, to the music obsessives like us. Mm -hmm.
1: uh, And final question. Um, You open the book by writing about Playing music for your father on his deathbed. Um, Yeah, this is maybe an off the wall question. Have you? Do you have music Mm
0: -hmm. you would want to hear in that circumstance? It's a good question. I don't. You know, in in that circumstance, it's partly as I learned. It's partly about the about the family, right? It's partly about what they want to hear, what they what they what they connect to you. When when I'm, you know, the music. I do have music I use as like background music. It's often, you know, house and techno and some some electronic dance music on the slightly more minimal side. I find helpful when I'm working. When people ask me like my favorite song, sometimes I say All Night Long by Lionel Richie. Um, I love that song. I love the the post disco groove. I love the uh, I love the interjection in what was I believe supposed to be but then wasn't af- actually an African language. Um but there's us you know, there's other things that I have a, a kind of a for me, I don't I, I realize that I don't necessarily draw a distinction between a sort of more grown up or cerebral appreciation of something and a more visceral love for it, right? And that the stuff I, I, I fell in love with when I was a kid, a band like the descendants that are you know still one of my favorite punk rock fans. Um, it's not like it's a different part of my brain. Um, that enjoys that than the part of my brain that enjoys like the UK rapper Pasal Yu or something, who, as it happens, like me, is uh, has family from Gambia. Um, so yeah, and when I'm listening to music, I kind of – I'd maybe drive my family crazy. I have a playlist – um, I have a few different playlists, but I, the the playlist I listen to most often, like when we're eating dinner, the one I throw on in the background, is like forty five hundred songs long, and it's only songs from the last year and so <laughs> and so every few days I'm adding new things, and when stuff hits the one year mark at the top of the playlist, it gets kicked off, um, which is how I process new music. It's like the only way to keep up with the fire hose of new music, so I tend to, as a listener, I love novelty, and I tend to often seek out cool new stuff. So if, if, the, if the people who love me, if the, certainly members of my family associate me with anything, it's associating me probably with whatever was released on the most recent Friday. Well,
1: thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been really a fun talk. Um, the book, once again, is Major Labels, A History of Popular Music in Seven Genres. It's out
0: now. Well, thanks, Franz. Your your music and your, uh, your concerts and your albums have given me a lot of joy over the years. So if my book could give you a little joy, that's super awesome. Thanks for talking to me.